Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 16th, 2016. This is episode 1850 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you today. This is a Tuesday show, so it's a Just Jack show, and we're going to be talking about getting started with Bitcoin. And I decided to throw Ether in there as well, too. I have at least one other alternative uh, currency. In today's show, of course, being a Tuesday show, that means you guys voted on this show. You decided you wanted to hear it. And uh, I did make good on my promise to get out the uh, the poll for September shows this week. That was put out today. So you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and you'll see the uh, post there. If you scroll down a little bit uh, to vote, you'll see you decide, you know, like the election. Except this one, your vote really does count. And you can vote for the uh, the shows in September. I've got some good ones coming for you. I'll give you a, an announcement of what the subjects are in just a second. Let's talk a little bit about what I'm going to try to do for you guys today with Bitcoin. I am not a Bitcoin expert. I am not an alternative currency expert. I don't claim to be. I don't use all of the features that you can use with Bitcoin. I know about some of them, and I know that they're, a possi they're possible, but I don't know exactly how to do them. I use Coinbase, and that's the, the, the system and the, the wallet that I'm going to talk about using today because I believe it's the easiest and one of the safest places to keep your Bitcoin. There are some good things about it, and maybe, in, in your opinion, some not-so-good things about it. I'll explain those to you. But my hope today is that you understand why Bitcoin works in the first place. And to do that, we're going to start out with an understanding of why money works in the first place. Because a lot of people that think, well, Bitcoin isn't real, well... Let's take a look at the U.S. dollar first and see how Bitcoin compares to that. And you, you actually get a lot more assurances from Bitcoin than you do from the U.S. dollar in some ways. Um, so we're going to talk about all that. And I'm going to try to make you comfortable with the concept of buying, selling, and using Bitcoin to buy other things. And to maybe if you have a business, how to accept Bitcoin. It's not hard. And again, uh, Coinbase makes it really, really easy, so I'm going to kind of focus on that system. Because I use it, I know it, that type of thing. But there's a lot of wallets out there. I keep hearing about this wallet called Jax, J-A-X-X, -X, uh, on Free Talk Live, and it seems like it's probably a good wallet. You can move your, uh, your, your, your currencies and switch currencies right in your wallet or whatever, and that, that's fine and all, but uh, I'm sticking with Coinbase for now, and hopefully this will give you a fundamental understanding of why the heck this thing works, and in some ways why it's a better solution than what we call money today, even though the government says it's not money. And I'll even tell you why I think it's a good thing that the government says it's not money at this point. Before we do that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1850 because the episode is 1850. Alex Shrugged has three for us today. We have another compromise on slavery. We have the Underground Railroad is still running. And we have yet another Arctic rescue mission. And in other news, in San Francisco and Los, San Francisco and Los Angeles are incorporated in 1850, and California becomes the 31st state. Can you say California Gold Rush? I knew you could. American Express Fast Mail Delivery Service is founded. Henry Wells and William Fargo run the company. Hmm, where have I heard the names Wells and Fargo before? And Pinkerton National Detective Agency is founded. Alan Pinkerton will make his name thwarting an attempted assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He will miss the final attempt. Though, I'm going to read for you. The Underground Railroad is still running. 
With the passing of stricter fugitive slave laws, uh, special commissions are set up that do not allow fugitives to testify on their own behalf. No trial by jury is allowed. Penalties are assessed upon law enforcement officers who refuse to enforce the fugitive slave laws. The commissioner of these pseudo-courts is paid twice as much to rule against the fugitive than he is to, on, to rule on the fugitive's behalf. When this new law is challenged in various state courts, it is often overturned, but the Supreme Court will uphold the practice. The new law is agitating the abolitionists, so they step up their efforts to help slaves escape to free states in Canada. It's called the Underground Railroad, but it's actually any number of escape routes by road, wagon, boat, whatever it takes. Safe houses along the way feed and house runaways until they can move on. One runaway slave is Harriet Tubman. She has been guiding slaves along the Underground Railroad over and over again. But with this new fugitive slave law, she's extending the trip to Canada now. By all accounts, Harriet Tubman is making a difference. In total, she will guide about 70 runaway slaves to freedom. In the next 10 years, the use of the underground will soar. That means a lot more people than Harriet will be breaking the law. My take by Alex Shrugged. There is a general rule that I've heard in many forums, but it comes down to this. Do not make a law that people will not follow. Do not issue an order that will not be obeyed. Why? Because it encourages law-breaking and a breakdown of discipline. So if you're going to pass a law, make sure that people understand it so they don't break it out of confusion, and make sure that the law is just. Having a Supreme Court rule on the correctness of any law has become meaningless to me. They have been morally wrong so many times that I have stopped listening, and that is part of the problem. If I do not respect the lawmakers and those who ruled on the law, then on rare occasion where they are correct, I will be paying attention. Would I be paying attention? Probably not. Um, here's my take on this: a couple things. One on the Supreme Court and ruling on whether a law is just or not. You know that your court is not strictly interpreting the Constitution when you have decisions that are, you know, five four. That that tells you it right there. When you have decisions where you have a, a very split court then ideology is replacing fact. And that swings both ways, to the left and to the right. Sometimes the liberal justices are correct, and sometimes the more conservative justices are correct. But it's politics influencing the split. And what I mean by that is a judge is supposed to do a job. It's very, very simple. It really is. You don't worry about what Spain thinks. You don't worry about uh, the, the fact that somebody might be upset. You don't worry about somebody's feelings. You look at things very methodically, and you, especially as Supreme Court judge. We're not talking here about you know, whether or not you give uh, some level of uh, sympathy to uh, a person convicted of a crime and maybe give them some leniency. We're talking about judging the law itself. And you look at the law and you say, does this law match the Constitution or does it not match the Constitution? That is all. That is all you're supposed to do. Now, given that to be a Supreme Court justice, one has to be pretty smart and pretty well accomplished in the legal field before they get there, they should have a pretty damn good understanding of what the Constitution says and what it does not say. And it should be a very common thing that most of your decisions, especially your hotly debated ones, would actually be slam dunks on one side or other of the court. You might have a dissenter or two, but when you have these razor thin or you have these locked court decisions right now, we're sitting with four and four because they won't let anybody uh, be appointed to the court until after the election, then that tells you right there that this is a political thing. And when, when judges are being political, they're not doing their job. The other thing is, it amazes me how many Americans are still brainwashed to believe something that is stupid as, because the law says so, it's right. That if you break the law, you're inherently a bad person. 
and, and we're about to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, right? Because she did something so wonderful. But these same people at the time, then you would have had to say she deserves to go to prison, right? No. Well, what the hell's the difference? What the hell's the difference? What, because it's over? Because the person was proven right? Now it's great that they broke the law, but when somebody's breaking the law today because you don't like it, whether the law is moral or not doesn't matter. What if we passed a law that said all children at the age of 12 are to be taken to a place and punched in the face by a big strong man? Would you try to protect children from that? Or would you say that anybody that did is evil and wrong? You know, we have a law that says it's it's illegal to use and possess cannabis. And we have children who are being cured of seizures with cannabis oil. By the way, that particular cannabis oil came to get you high. But so what? Somebody wants to get baked? Is it really our business? Is it really? Well, public health, compare it to alcohol. right? I'm just saying, like, we have to start as a people evaluating all these laws, these rules, these regulations on a morality basis, not just the letter of the law. Because it's up to the, it's supposed to be up to the court to evaluate things on the letter of the law. It's supposed to be up to us as those that let these fools pass all these laws to determine what we do and do not legislate. But we've been asleep on the job, well, since at least 1850. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys about our two sponsors of the day today. Hey, Guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop BulkAmmo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Okay, so with that, let's get into it. I want to kind of, again remind you guys where I'm coming from today because there's probably some of you listening to this show today that know more about Bitcoin and altcoins in general and Ether and uh, what is it, the new one that they're uh, they're using like in a Reddit type system, what is it called, uh, uh, Steam, where it's kind of like a Reddit system and people that upvote get a little bit of Steam and they give Steam to the person that posted the article and, and what have you, things like that. Um, and, and I have to admit, I don't know about all these different currencies. Where I'm coming from when I look at things like Bitcoin, when I look at things like Ether, and I take the time to evaluate individual ones and decide whether or not I want to hold some of them or do business in them, is from a standpoint of being what I consider a pretty good assessor of economics and an understanding of modern money mechanics. Um, I believe that if, uh, if I had ever gone to school to be something that would have been you know your 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 shirt and tie job and and uh been you know in in the regular business world the 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 career path of economist is something I could have done well I think I would have been miserable but I think I could have done very well with it so I have a an, an exceptional fundamental understanding of basic economics and 
Something that many monetary, uh, or I'm saying many economists don't under, actually really understand is monetary creation. And, and to, I, I think that's why they're actually weak as economists, because if you don't truly understand monetary creation in a fractional reserve banking system, then you can't understand money mechanics, right? And if you can't understand money mechanics, then concepts like inflation and deflation are mysterious to you, and it's actually easy for you to be, you know, fooled into believing that inflation is simply increasing the monetary supply. When increasing the money supply alone does not create inflation. It's one way that you can push inflation, and constricting it is one way that you can kind of push down inflation, but there's many other things that have to happen. So what I want to start out with, even though we're going to be talking about Bitcoin mostly today, is how money itself is created in works. And I'm going to give you the Jack Spearco short version because I've done one hour plus podcast just on this. But money is created in the United States out of debt. And I think that's something most people that are awake at all know, but they don't really understand exactly how that works, where that debt comes from, who does it owe to, where does it go. So what happens is the U.S. Treasury decides that we need money that we don't have. We call those days weekdays. And so they issue a thing called a bond. Now, anybody can buy this bond, right? And when somebody buys that bond, that puts money into the treasury, okay? But and we won't get into how Goldman Sachs is a middleman, skims money and all these things like this. But there comes a point sometimes when maybe the government wants money and nobody's there to buy the money. And that's where the Federal Reserve that actually controls this whole thing steps in, and they buy the bond, right? Now, you would think they buy the bond with money. They don't buy the bond with money. What? They don't buy the bond with money? No, they don't buy the bond with money. They make a journal entry that deposits money into the United States Treasury Department's coffers, okay? And let's say it's a $10 billion dollars. Government needs $10 billion, and they go to the lender of last resort, the Federal Reserve, because nobody wants to lend the money today, right? The old ladies buying savings bonds have dried up, and in goes $10 billion, and now the government has $10 billion. And they owe the $10 billion plus interest back to the Federal Reserve. So, again, the Federal Reserve never had the $10 billion. They didn't take $10 billion and give it to them. They created it with the entry, literally a job an eighth grader could do, deposit to U.S. Treasury $10 billion, boom, and it's a transaction. That's it. It's the whole thing. Now, I'm simplifying a little bit, but not much. And if, if, if this is hurting your head, if you're having a hard time understanding this, wait till you see how all of the system works this way. So that's one way the monetary system can be expanded. The other way that can be expanded is, and this is far more often the way this happens, if the government is selling bonds directly to the Fed, everybody knows things are bad. That means that the banks aren't buying bonds, the old ladies aren't buying bonds, the Russians aren't buying it, the Chinese aren't buying it, whatever. So what the U.S. Federal Reserve will do is it will let somebody like, let's say, Bank of America, right, or, or Wells Fargo, right, go in and buy $10 billion worth of, of U.S. bonds, And then it will turn around and buy the bonds from the bank. And sometimes they'll even say, guys, we, we need more buying. So if you go buy this, we'll, we'll be paying this much on this day, and you're going to make a little money through some nepotism there. And, of course, again, this all gets funneled through people like the Goldman Sachs, right? And then they get their little transaction fee in the, the millions per billion uh, to do this crap. 
And it's all a gimmick and it's all a game. So then that means another way money can be created is you are Bank of America. You buy $10 billion worth of bonds. I'm the Federal Reserve. I come to you and buy $10 billion worth of bonds from you. And I hold them till maturity, and now the government owes me the money. Okay? How does that create money? Well, once again, the Federal Reserve doesn't have money that it gives to you as Bank of America. It makes a journal entry into your books that creates $10 billion out of thin air. That's called monetizing the debt. So real money got lent to the government. Then the bond was purchased with phony money that's now in the system. But it keeps going. When you buy a house, let's say you're going to buy a house, $250,000 is the loan you need. I don't know what the total price is, but after payments and all, just to make it simple, you need $250,000 from the bank. The bank does not give you $250,000 that it has. No, no, no. They make a journal entry that says deposit to you $250,000. And then that creates $250,000 out of thin air. It goes to the seller, right, and pays commissions and pays off existing debt, whatever, and it's, it's gone. You don't actually get it. You get a bill for $250,000 plus interest out over 30 years. Your promise to pay the bill is how the money was created. Are uh, you starting to see how this all works now? It's not just that the money's not backed by anything. All the money's backed by debt, and the money is created by the issuance of debt itself. And there is no real limit to this. And this is something many people do not understand about banks. Many people do know that banks operate under what they call a 10% reserve. Now, what a 10% reserve means to people in their mind is this. If I'm a bank, and I'm a really tiny bank, and I... I own, I have a hundred thousand dollars in deposits that I can then loan out ninety thousand dollars and hold ten thousand dollars of it in reserve. That, that sounds pretty scary, but what if I told you that's not how it works? No, 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 no. That's not how it works. If I have a hundred thousand dollars in deposits, I can hold the hundred thousand dollars as a reserve and I can loan out a million dollars. You get it now? Okay, so that's how our current economic system works. That is the U.S. monetary system. Uh, I could go into deeper explanations, but that's how it works. So then you might say to yourself, well, where does the value come from? This is where the gold bug people, you know, the, the hard money people, this is where the fiat people, this is where everybody loses their minds and doesn't understand anything about money. I'm sorry, they don't. Money is worth nothing in of itself. It is the willingness of people to use the money and thereby create an economy, and the economy itself is how money derives its value. So the fact that somebody will give you a box of chicken thighs for $10 is what gives the $10 its value. And you could, you could literally, as long as the consumer and the lender and the borrower All, and the merchant all have confidence in the unit, you could literally substitute anything for a dollar and it would work. You could create a currency called Obama Space Credits, and it probably wouldn't work because nobody would have confidence in it, but if people did, it would work. You could build a currency based on small copper disks, not even pennies, like just stamped Pieces of copper, I'm saying that because I have one in my hand right now for a project. And it would work. You could build an a, a, a currency system based on ammunition, and it would work. 
You can build a currency system based on grain. It was done. It worked. You can build one based on what's called tally sticks, and it would work. Tally sticks were a piece of wood that was split, and they would never have two that would ever fit together except the two, and one was held as like a ledger, and the other one was used and traded, and when somebody wanted to settle up and get paid on the stick itself, they would bring it into the bank, basically, and they would put the sticks together, and as long as they trued up, it would be paid out against, and because there was confidence that that would happen, and be paid out of the king's treasury in England, tally sticks worked for 500 years. A piece of wood split in half. Worked for five centuries. And, and, and when you say, like, well, you know, it, it, these things don't work, well, they do work. Because, again, it's not about the, the item that's being exchanged for some. It's not about the monetary unit. It's about the item. If people value somebody cleaning their pool, then some form of exchange will exist to enable that trade to happen. And when you understand that, you understand why this insane system works. I mean, there's no reason it should. It, it, it's the most asinine way to run a monetary system in the world. And they did it on purpose because some of you have rewound this first 15 minutes of the show like five times now and you're trying to get it. And it, I don't remember who it was, but there was someone who said, it was an economist that said, the system of monetary creation in the United States today is so simple that it repels the logical mind. That the reason you don't get it is because it's so simple and so simply stupid, your mind does not want to accept it. But yet it works. Well, it'll, it'll, uh, the reason it was created that way is it creates a, a system in which the Federal Reserve enriches itself on the debts of the American people to the nth degree. Because what people say is, well, the Federal Reserve doesn't really, you know, the money just kind of, when it gets paid back, it goes away. Uh, they're just there as like a service. No, they keep the interest, folks. They keep the interest on money that they loaned that they never had. Pretty good game, isn't it? Okay. And that's how this monetary system works. So when you understand that something that ridiculous can work, when you understand what Bitcoin is and how it works, you're going to be like, well, of course that could work. That makes a hell of a lot more sense. And the people that like bashed the crap out of Bitcoin in the beginning, they said it was a virtual tulip mania, electronic tulip mania. No, the, the people that were saying that, first of all, didn't know how monetary creation works and, and realized how much closer U.S. dollars are to tulip mania than something like Bitcoin is. But they don't understand how Bitcoin works. So let's start out with, and I'm going to be giving, again, those of you that are like experts on this stuff, you're going to say, like, he's leaving things out. It's a one-hour-ish podcast, and I'm trying to make it simple for people that don't understand it. So I'm even taking it down from what I know, and you probably know more than me, and that's okay. But Bitcoins are mined. And, and the, 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 instead of getting, like, what kind of computer it takes, here's how simple it is to understand. It takes math to mine a Bitcoin out of the out of the, the blockchain. Okay? There's a mathematical set of rules that make it where a computer has to do a certain amount of work to just think of it as one coin going plunk like out of a slot machine and come out, right? Okay. So in the beginning there were a lot of bitcoins available to be mined relatively quickly. And over time 
there's less and less Bitcoins to be mined every year. And it's something like a 120-year plan, and there will only ever be 24 million Bitcoins. When the last Bitcoin is mined, there'll be 24 million Bitcoins. And as a consequence, the amount of work a computer has to do to make one Bitcoin come out today is significantly more work than it used to be in the very early days when Bitcoin traded under a dollar a coin, where today I think it's trading in like the $400, $500 range. I'll, I'll check that here in just a second. Um, but that's, that's how it's mined. Now, does that sound like gold to you in some ways? In fact, it's, it's in some ways a better plan than gold because you know exactly what you're dealing with. There's no environmental rule that's going to come in and say you can't do this anymore. And you still have a fixed quantity. You have a cap on a currency. So when you cap a currency, you assure value to a certain point. It, 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 based on, again, it has to circulate in the economy. I talked about inflation. Inflation is, is not just a, a function of how much of a currency exists, but what's called velocity of money. Okay, you have a certain volume, we call that M3 in the dollar world. That's all the money that exists is the M3 supply. But then, how fast does the money move? If it sits still, you have very little to no inflation. If it moves, you can have inflation if you have an abundance of money. If it moves and is lended a lot, then it moves and multiplies. And now you have significant inflation. All right, And Bitcoin is devoid of that. Because it's a deflationary currency. As, as more and more people want to use it, there's less and less available. And unlike gold, we can only take gold to a certain size, if we're going to use coinage, before it's infinitesimally small and it's not practical for use anymore. And it costs more to make that little piece of gold into some form that's easily identifiable and transferable than it's actually worth. And larger pieces are worth so much no one wants to exchange them. Where with Bitcoin, it's infinitesimally fractionable. I don't know exactly what... The, there is a, a limit, but it goes down to like nine digits. So you can have a point zero 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 one of a Bitcoin. right? I think I call it a Sachi. And that means that there can never be one too much Bitcoin... And there can never be too little Bitcoin. You can't get caught in a shortage. So this was the problem with metals as a currency. That when people started hoarding their metal, then you, you didn't have enough currency to run the economy on. And the guy that had one coin couldn't, couldn't you know, pick off a little tiny uh, pinprick of it to, to, to buy a potato. But with Bitcoin, you can. So... When you understand that there's these, these, these set rules and you can't, you can't counterfeit Bitcoin. I mean, that was one of the big things that people flipped out about. This is going to be counterfeiting. It's been around a long time, guys. If you could counterfeit it, somebody would be doing it. You, you can't because of how it comes into existence. You can trace every Bitcoin back to where it came from if you wanted to do it. All right. So the reason it's deflationary again is so inflation means your money buys less and less. Deflation means your money buys more and more. And in our economy, deflation is worse than inflation. Deflation is a nightmare for anybody that owes money. Okay, In the world of Bitcoin, 
since it offers a, an alternative, deflation is what you want. We call deflation, when it's an alternative currency, appreciation. If you have deflation that would be measured with gold, then that means that the value of gold relative to the dollar, gold goes up. It's the same thing. Okay. Now, unlike gold, Bitcoin doesn't have an intrinsic value. It's not a physical thing. right? So the world could literally end, and if any kind of semblance of an economy came back, gold would probably still be used as money. That's why it's part of a smart portfolio. Remember, I'm the guy that says about 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold, 5% to 10%, whatever you're comfortable with, done over time and smartly. You don't do it when the metal's at its all-time high. Okay? Um, so I'm not saying it's better than gold. I'm saying that in some ways it functions much better than gold as a currency. And because we are in a society where Bitcoin is still being used by a very, very small number of people, you have to just think about the fact that there'll be nowhere near as much Bitcoin produced this year as there was two years ago. And if the number of Bitcoin users doubles, then you have a deflationary pressure which would expectedly push Bitcoin to roughly double its value. Because it would have to. Now, things happen. People get profits. They start selling. There's just like any other commodity. It's not magic. It's not guaranteed up, guaranteed down. It doesn't work that way. But over time, you've seen Bitcoin become relatively stable because people are using it. And as long as people use it, it can derive value from the economy that it circulates in. That's how it works. Let's talk about what makes Bitcoin secure. Bitcoin is as secure as you and anybody you trust to hold it for you makes it. It is no more or less secure than dollars or gold or anything else. In some ways, it can be more secure. This is part of why I like Coinbase. Coinbase has a function called a vault. And first of all, let me tell you what it would take for you to hack into my Coinbase account and get at my Bitcoin and my Ether that's in there. First thing you would need is my login information. So you would have to have my username and my password. People break that all the time and get into people's PayPal accounts, for instance, and send money to multiple accounts and skip it around and try to get it all out of there before uh, they get caught. But it happens, right? And they get a password and a username, and they're in, and they're in, right? And they could be in there for weeks or months before you even know it when they, while they're figuring out what to do and when to hit you, okay? If you got my username and password to my Coinbase account, it would do absolutely nothing to help you. In fact, I would know it and you wouldn't be able to get in. You would go to Coinbase.com, you would put my username and password in. My phone would start vibrating. My phone would vibrate and it would give me a security token. And you'd sit there at a screen and says, please enter your security token. And you wouldn't have it and I would. Well, I'd know that somebody has my account information and I would then go log into Coinbase and I would change my username and password. And you'd never get in. You'd have to have my username, my password, and my cell phone. Okay? When I put that money into a vault, right? So I say, I'm willing to have this portion of my Bitcoins tied up for 48 hours. That's what a vault does. It locks your money up. It takes 48 hours to get it back out. Well, I create, it's like a wallet, but it's a special wallet. Inside my Coinbase account, I create a new, new vault, name it whatever I want to name it, and I say, put two Bitcoins in there. 
And it's like, are you sure you want to do this? And you say, yeah. Okay, now you have to have two email addresses on file for that vault. One is your primary email address on your Coinbase account. When you set up the vault, you give it a second email address. The money now goes into the vault. If you hacked in to my Coinbase account, and if you had my cell phone, and you were able to get in, and I had most of my money in the vault, while you could do some things with the money outside of the vault, the money in the vault would be locked up. You could say, I'd like to move this money out of the vault. Again, my phone is going to vibrate, but assuming you have my phone, it's also going to tell you, we have now sent emails to both of your email addresses. Please click both emails to verify that you want to actually move the money out of your vault. And then another day will pass, and a second round of double emails will go out to both email addresses, which will both have to be clicked again. You'll also have to verify the security token through your cell phone, like you always do. So that's five verifications to get the money back out of the vault. You would then, therefore, have to have my cell phone. You would have to have access to both of my email accounts. You would have to have my username and my password to get to my Bitcoin. Does your bank do that? Does your bank do that for you? Now, that makes Bitcoin inherently secure. So what about these exchanges where some hacker breaks in and steals all the Bitcoin? Again, It's as secure as you and or the people that you entrust, i.e. an exchange is, to hold it for you. If you've looked, the exchanges that have been hit by hackers, where people have lost money, have generally been exchanges that operate on the fringe. Right? They're the, the, the Silk Road uh, friendly exchanges and things like that. And look, I'm all for liberty and freedom. I think there's a tremendous amount of shit that government does that it doesn't need to be worried about what we're doing. And I get that type of a concept with trying to hold money in a vessel that doesn't talk to government. Okay? Which is getting harder and harder for Bitcoin exchanges to do because they have to protect us, right? So one of the things people don't like about Coinbase is Coinbase is completely upfront with the government. Coinbase will require you if you if you want to be able to use all the tools to have your social security number or your merch your your, uh, your tax ID number if you're doing business as a company on file with them. If you want to be able to buy Bitcoin through their exchange directly, um, then you're going to have to link your bank account to it. If you receive over a certain amount of payments in Bitcoin, they'll send you a 1099k miscellaneous income. Just like PayPal will. In fact, Coinbase works like PayPal for Bitcoin. And Coinbase has done what is necessary to comply with regulations in all 50 states and Canada, and I believe many other countries around the world, and it's not easy. And because of its desire to be above board, it has to do financial reporting like PayPal would or any other merchant account type or bank would. Though they're not banks, they have to do much of the same reporting. So if you, somebody would say to me, "Well, I won't use Bitcoin. I won't use Coinbase because, you know, it does these things." Do you use PayPal? Yeah. Okay, they do that too. Do you have a bank account? Yeah. Well, they do even more. They file SARS and suspicious activity reports, and they notify any transaction over a certain amount. I mean, so. But if, and if that person turns back around and says, "Well, I know that." But for me, I want Bitcoin to be this place where that doesn't happen. Okay, well then, as far as I'm concerned, you're better off holding your Bitcoin in things like paper wallets or something like that, which I won't get into today. But there's other ways to do it. But these, these big exchanges, especially in foreign countries, I hate to say it, 
do tend to have more risk of being hacked. But when I look at the security protocols in place with Coinbase, I see something that's very, very secure, and I look at it as a PayPal-like service for Bitcoin and Ether. Okay? Um, Bitcoin also can be very public or very private. What you've probably heard, if you've heard the anti-Bitcoin people say, every single transaction in Bitcoin can be audited and the government can figure out everything that everybody did. Well, first of all, the government doesn't even understand Bitcoin. So they can't figure out everything anybody did, even if it is pretty much public. Um, however, there are protocols that you can use. One is called ZeroCoin. And I don't actually know how this works. I just know that it works. Let's say I wanted to send you five Bitcoins. And I didn't want anybody to know that I sent you Bitcoins, and you didn't want anybody to know that you got the Bitcoins from me. Well, what ZeroCoin would do is break those five Bitcoins into like a million ZeroCoins. I'm probably exaggerating the number, but it's a lot. And they would all take different paths through the blockchain and be reassembled as individual components and then re-manifest themselves as five Bitcoins in your wallet. And it would be impossible to audit those and figure out where they all came from. In telecommunications, we call that multiplexing. right? It's the same. That's why it makes sense to me. So in telecommunications, you might have uh, one pair of, of fiber and there might be you know, 50 different phone calls going across that, that those two pairs transmit and receive because they're plexed. That can be done in copper too, by the way, but just not as much as fiber can handle. So basically your call is being broken into little pieces and reassembled at the other end and somebody else is hearing what you're saying, but all the pieces are coming and being reapplied back together. They're mixed in with all everybody else's stuff. Technological wonder. It's actually harder to do with a phone than it is to do with something like Bitcoin. All right, so... There are ways to be completely private and completely public, and there are ways to be auditable yet secure with Bitcoin. It's up to the user how sophisticated they want to make it. Um, I have mentioned a few times here Ether, and I wanted to talk about Ether a little bit today. It's one of the only other alt currencies that I know much about other than Bitcoin at, at present time. Ether is to be used on the Ethereum network, but you can buy it through exchanges as well. I bought Ether today just because I thought it looked like a good buy in my Coinbase account. Um, Ether is unlike... So Bitcoin is supposed to be this currency that replaces the government's money everywhere. That you Because there's places that you can go to big department stores now and pay with Bitcoin. Now, here's how that's working. The merchant is using their account, and because Bitcoin is immediately liquid, they're, t they're turning that into dollars or euros, or depending on where they are, whatever currency they're using, almost immediately. If not instantly, once a day or twice a day. So to them, they don't care. And that creates use for Bitcoin. It's a good thing for Bitcoin. It makes people able to, to send and exchange Bitcoin between themselves, and then it's fungible into the hard currency to go out and buy groceries, right? Okay, so that's that's how Bitcoin is supposed to work. It is designed to directly compete with the dollar, the euro, the peso, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the the, the ruble, you, you name it, right? It, it, that's what it's designed to be, the, the global currency of choice for those that don't want to do business in the state's money, okay? Ether is designed to be used in Ethereum and... It is backed by Bitcoin. 
So it's basically you buy. Uh, it, it's not even backed by Bitcoin. It is it is traded against Bitcoin. It's priced relative to Bitcoin. Okay. And Ethereum as a whole is supposed to work this way. One of the things that it's supposed to do is enable contracts, uh, settlement and resolution, without having to involve a lawyer. It uses what you would call an if-then protocol. So you've hired me to do some work, and if I get to this point and you're satisfied, then I get paid this much, and then I go forward until the, the entire transaction is finished, And then I have been, I have delivered the service. You have provided the ether, okay? And then I can take that ether and hold it. I can send through. I can use it for some other transaction within Ethereum, okay? And I'll talk a little bit about Ethereum here in a second. Or I can have hold it in my exchange. I can sell it for dollars. I can convert it to Bitcoin. I can buy other altcoin with it. I can sell it and buy foreign currency with it. It's it's just another currency, but it's designed to run in the Ethereum network. Now, Ether is not exactly like Bitcoin in that it doesn't have the cap, and there's going to be a lot more Ether out there than there is Bitcoin. Um, I'm coming from numbers out of my head, so I not, may not be exactly 100% spot on here. But when Ether was first offered, it was offered basically like an IPO. And there's a whole bunch of ways it got broken up, but I think the total amount of Ether issued was like 72 million ethers all at once. And then Ethereum basically set a limit where there's going to be like 19 million or 18 million or 12 million, something like that ether created every year. And then they're playing around with something called the Rules of Casper that's supposed to take over in 2017 that's going to level that out some way. But the point is they're is the potential for a lot of Ether to be created every year. Okay, Now, it doesn't mean what can be created will, because it's created as the demand is there, and as miners, because Ether is mined a lot like Bitcoin, decide whether or not to sell their Ether or to keep it. So now Bitcoin miners do the same thing. Imagine this. You're a, you're a, a, a miner. You're mining for gold. And you have uh, found a pound of gold today. That's a lot of money. But the gold market keeps going up. It's very tempting for you then to hold on to your gold and wait for a better price for it. That happens with all of these alternative currencies and miners. Many miners will mine a long time, especially with these new cheap currencies, thinking if I can get a bunch when the mining's easy during the rush but not be foolish and sell my, my product, then I can hold some. And some of the protocols, and I think Ether does this a little bit, when the miner gets a certain amount out, it also releases some into the, the, the whole network as a whole, and the miner gets his piece, the rest goes out into the network. He still can hold, you know, the miners are the ones making the, 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 the big gains, and they can still hold that. So that can also affect how much of it actually circulates. Just because it's there doesn't mean that it's doing anything. What this generally results in is inflation followed by leveling followed by deflation. In other words, the, the thing stays dramatically cheap, might spike a few times as people get excited about it, but keeps dropping back down, then kind of crawls up to a reasonable value, hits a level of, of uh, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, stability, and then 
if the if the currency becomes effective and starts being used, even if there's some ups and downs in it, it's a slow rise over time. And you might even have one big weird pop, like Bitcoin did, where it went way, way up and came back down. And then people said, look, and you, well, if you look at the total trend, you got this continuous, slow, upward increase in value. It's not guaranteed, but right now it's functioning like it's supposed to. Because we know there will only be 24 million Bitcoins. Ethereum is trying to play in what looks like a smaller world, but in some ways it's a bigger world. See, since Bitcoin is just a replacement for money, people can use it, and it's a lot of times, again, it's being used and going straight back into dollars. Ethereum is trying to, well, in many ways, displace the entire financial system beyond what Bitcoin ever dreamed of. Ethereum is looking to, this is what I love about Ethereum. About two, two and a half years ago, I came up with an idea called Virtual Nations. I did a whole podcast on a virtual nation I just named out of my head. I called it Libertas. And I said that Libertas would work. You'd come in, you'd, you'd basically buy Bitcoin, and then you would exchange your Bitcoin for Libertasian tokens, and you'd do all your business inside Libertas, and you tell the governments of the world, two big middle fingers, we don't care. It's not your money. It's ours. We created it inside here, and we're not bringing it outside. And when we do, then we deal with tax consequences. But inside Libertas, this is we have the dual citizenship. And I'm doing business as a Libertasian citizen. And if you did that, you could create entire operations like stock markets and things like that. Ethereum is so close to doing what I said, it's unbelievable. And there's other places that are talking about things like BitNation and what have you. This whole virtual uh, nation concept, again, something I put out there years ago, seems like a lot of people are trying to actually build it. And Ethereum seems like one of the people on the right track. I'm not saying they're going to make it, but one of the people on the right track. So you would need a lot more Ethereum if instead of just being a replacement for dollars that gets funged back and forth, you were going to run a stock exchange. And companies that normally couldn't do an IPO because it's too expensive could do an IPO and let you invest in it. But you would be investing with Ether. And then the Ether you would have procured through Bitcoin. And by this point, it's just, it's just property. It's not money. The government says it's not money. It's very hard for the government to go in there and say, well, this is an illegal stock market. It's, it's not a stock market. It's a, it's a contractual agreement run by a computer using a space token that you, says is, you say isn't real money. And the, the whole point of Ethereum is that people to be able to run marriages including conflict resolution in the event of a divorce without government. So Ethereum is exciting, but it doesn't have the stability from a standpoint of the knowns that Bitcoin does with total quantity. So I see it as a riskier play and something you consider you know, carefully before you spend a lot of money on. But over the years, I've taken Bitcoin, and you know, today I thought you know, it kind of looks like a good price. I just took a Bitcoin, and I sold it. For dollars, and then I use the dollars to buy Ethereum right inside Coinbase. Really, really simple. And because I sell a product like a membership, I don't get a lot of people that buy in Bitcoin, but when I do, it's kind of like the house is money, so to speak. I, it's, I, it, I've never saw it as a dollar. It was only ever a Bitcoin. And I think a lot of you guys with businesses could really quickly start accepting Bitcoin, and you can do that through Coinbase. 
If you sell online, even if you sell offline, you can still accept Bitcoin because people can pay you with their phone. And I see even people that are things like, let's say you are a handyman and you're going to go out today and, and do some work for somebody and they say, I want to pay you in silver. Let's compare Bitcoin to silver here. And you like silver, but you might say something like, you know, I have enough cash for the week, except I'm going to have to buy these parts. The parts are going to cost $150. I'm going to charge them $200. So I could take $200 in cash or check, and then I'm going to charge $250 for labor. I could take that in Bitcoin and then or in silver because then I can just put the silver away. right? What if the person just says, I want to pay you $450? That's how much it is. I'll pay you that in Bitcoin. And you receive that money into your Coinbase account. It's immediately fungible into dollars. Whatever portion you need in dollars, you can just sell for dollars that second. The second you get paid. Hold on a second. Thanks for that. Okay, boom. You got cash. You're holding U.S. dollars and some of it in Bitcoin. How are you going to do with silver? How are you going to do with gold? That's, that's what's amazing about this. That you can accept it and immediately fungit it to dollars if that's what you want to do. Or you can hold it as Bitcoin if that's what you want to do. If you're holding Bitcoin and all of a sudden you decide you need some dollars because you have to buy something and the person won't take Bitcoin for it, you can change it into dollars. If you're holding Ether and you know you 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 can't spend the Ether because you're not working inside Ethereum and you need that Ether to be fungible, you can sell the Ether for dollars and then spend dollars, or you can spend the Ether to dollars and then you can take those dollars and buy Bitcoin. You could take the money out of your Coinbase account when you change it to dollars and send it right to your bank account to be used as dollars in the dollar system. Gold and silver have nothing on this. I'm sorry. They have intrinsic value in that you can physically hold them and touch them, and that's a wonderful thing, but from a usage as money, they got nothing. They got nothing. And remember, we are, we are talking about playing completely above board today, with the government, and not hiding what you're doing. But if that's what you wanted to do, I'm not going to give instructions on how. I'm just going to tell you that it's possible. But this is the way to get started and do things above board. And when you're running a business and accepting money, that's what you should be doing. But I think it's going to be, and again, I don't know if Ethereum is going to be the one that pulls it off. There's going to be companies and groups and open source projects like Ethereum that are going to move us into a world where... See, the way I actually see it working smartest would be to get the the Ether, you buy a Bitcoin, and the Bitcoin buys uh, another specific like alternative currency that can't be used outside of Ethereum at all. And, and, and so you have basically a Bitcoin backing. That was how I could. But I could be wrong. I don't, again, I'm not an expert on this. But I do believe that you're going to see these, these virtual communities built, these virtual nations built, where people are going to have the ability to exchange this stuff completely independently and privately from, from the modern world, from the governments of the world. Because when the governments say they want to see it, the, 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 the people, man, you don't even own it, right? It's managed. It will say, we can't tell you. It doesn't work that way. We, they can build it so it's not audible from the outside. You can't audit it. You want to get in, so you've got to pay to play. And then you still only know what you're allowed to know by the parties that choose to do business with you. With rating systems where when somebody comes in to, I think, the Ethereum of the future, 
if I figure out how to do business there, when they see you know the ability to do with Jack Spierko as the Survival Podcast, there's a rating. I have a, a rating, a value that says this person's honest and trustworthy and has been doing business in, in, in this, this community for a long time, the return of the small town, right? But the small town is now the whole globe. It's, it's the promise that was supposed to be Facebook and Twitter actually revealed because those things are so manipulatable. In the beginning, that's what Facebook and Twitter became. You screw me over, I have 20,000 followers, I can tell them about that, you're not getting business from those people anymore. But it really didn't do anything for me to, 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 uh, to build up my reputation. Because it, all it was was somebody that was mad saying, don't do business here. It wasn't 20,000 people have successfully done business with this person. Because you think about it. Most of the time, people don't tend to write reviews of things they're happy with. They tend to write reviews of things they're unhappy with. It's, it's harder to get somebody, especially when it's just a random transaction. You buy MSB from me. You get an email. It gives you login. Go, this is great. I don't even really have a place for you to go put a testimony or whatever. But what if the computer just recorded it? Not John did business with Jack, but a transaction was done with Jack. Everybody was satisfied. Clink, one in the kitty for Jack. A transaction went went wonky with Jack. Jack fixed it. Customer was happy. Dink, another one in the clink. Good for Jack. It's an unmanipulatable system because you can't say, I didn't deliver the service because the computer determines whether I did it or not. And you can't claim you did business with me if you never did. And if I said to you, I don't do business with people like you for whatever reason, there's no way for you to hurt my reputation because no business took place. This is where I see Ether going, and that's why I'm excited about it, but I don't see it as as, as, as stable as a thing as Bitcoin. I'll find a good article. I'm sure there's some articles out there that I'll put in so you can learn more about Ether as an investor. As to other alternative currencies, the, the truth is I just don't know yet. Um, I'll tell you one thing you have to look at when you look at alternative currencies. In many of the places where you'll see pricing on the exchanges, Bitcoins become the metric. So they show the value of something like Litecoin, for instance, against Bitcoin. Well, it might look like Litecoin went down. It may have. It may not have. Bitcoin may have gone up. Therefore, the apparent relationship has created the illusion that the, the other currency has gone down. So you always have to look at ways to compare. If you want to compare based on your perception, which would be dollar perception, What has that currency done relative to the dollar? Here's how I mean that. You, you might compare, let's say, and I don't even know how they would show up today, but the Great British Pound against the Euro. And it may look like the pound has gone up or down. I don't know, based on what the Euro did. But the pound did nothing, let's say. And let's say the Euro rose. Well, that would show that the pound has gone down in value even though it's just basically stayed level against our currency, the U.S. dollar. To see how it would affect you, you'd have to price it against dollars. This is where it all starts to get gray, because you're starting to move toward a world where people don't even worry about what dollars do anymore. They want to know what Bitcoins do, or they want to know what Ethers do, or they want to know what Dogecoin or Duckcoin or whatever does. All right? But I don't really know that much about the other alternative currencies. I want to talk a little bit about how Coinbase works, and I will tell you that 
I just found today that they do have a referral program. I don't know what it pays or whatever, but you supposedly, if somebody signs up through your link, you get some Bitcoin added to your account. I have links in the show notes today. Yes, if you use that link and go to Coinbase and sign up, I'll get credit, however the hell that works, for your referral. I would appreciate it if you did, but you don't have to. I'm sure it's not that much. But if you'd like to, please go to my site first. Don't go just to Coinbase and look up today's episode 1850 uh, and click one of the several links I have in there. And I also want to disclose that whenever I do affiliate things, I always disclose it. Um, but when you set it up, if you've used PayPal, it seems a lot like PayPal. It really is, except you're, 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 you're not generally worried about dollars. Now you're worried about Bitcoin. You can hold Bitcoin Ether and dollars in Coinbase. That is all you can hold at this point. I think if you're international, if you're Canadian, for instance, you can hold Canadian dollars, right? So you hold your currency of your nation, and you can hold Ether, and uh, you can hold, obviously, Bitcoin. Generally, the way that you would fund your account is just like PayPal. You would link it to a bank account, and then you can do an automatic transfer and pull money from your bank account over as dollars. Or you can buy Bitcoin using that link to your bank account. So, And you can also add a credit card to your account. So let's say you are a person like me, right? And you do business mostly in PayPal. And you think to yourself, self, I would like to start buying 50, 100, whatever dollars worth of Bitcoin a month. You can take the credit debit card that's attached to your PayPal account, you can put that in as a method of purchase on your Coinbase account, and you can say, today I want to buy $50 worth of Bitcoin. You can set it up as a recurring. You can say, every month on this day, buy $50 worth of Bitcoin until I say stop using this payment method. It's up to you. All right? Um, again, I want to point out, yes, these guys do report to the .gov, just like PayPal does. Now, that doesn't mean that every little thing you do is audited, but it does mean, again, if you are taking Bitcoin and you do over a certain number of transactions or a certain amount of money, they will send a 1099-K to you, which basically says report this is, is income to the government. It gets gray on exactly how that works because the government says it's not money. Well, the government says it's a commodity, and when you sell it, i.e. directly or spend it, you're supposed to calculate how much it went up or down, and report it as a capital gain or a capital loss. Got it? Which leaves a big gaping gray area in accounting. Let's say that you send me $50 worth of Bitcoin a day for MSB membership. I don't do nothing with it. End of the tax year comes, I still haven't done anything with it. Is it income? Sometimes the IRS says yes, sometimes it says yeah, sort of, sometimes it says no, maybe... Right? Technically, until I spend it or sell it and convert it to dollars, it's just there. But by the letter of tax laws, I understand it, it would be seen as income that year, $50. At the point that I buy or sell from that point on that $50, which, where did it all come from? You have to do kind of a, a accounting calculation, average cost of acquisition during the tax year, right? So let's say that $50 worth of Bitcoin becomes worth $40, and I spend it, I have a $10 capital loss. It's an accounting nightmare, which means they really can't figure it out either at this point. They've issued guidance, sort of. And the best thing you can do is keep it as simple as possible for yourself and pay them their extortion money if you're doing enough business to warrant it in Bitcoin. 
Okay. However, I think that as you move into worlds like Ethereum and what have you, and all the business is done inside another entity, it's very difficult then for them to claim anything. It's almost like going to another country and working there It's when or setting up a business there. It's only when you repatriate the money, i.e. convert it to dollars, that it's taxed. It's, it's, it's a complicated situation. So it's something you don't want to try to screw the government with. All right? I know it's very tempting to want to, but I don't think that we should. Um, another reason I love Coinbase is they're extremely secure. I've already gone through the whole vault thing and all, but I believe that they are the most secure financial-type website I have ever used in my life. Okay? And they allow you immediately, once you get your account set up and put some money in it, you can start buying, selling, sending, and receiving Bitcoin. Right. What they don't let you do right now is, is receive Ether. Um, whenever you set up what they call a wallet, you get an address. So I can look at any wallet that I've created on uh, Coinbase that, for a Bitcoin, and I can click it. It'll give me this very long numeric code or a QR code if I prefer. And I can give it to you and say, if you want to send me Bitcoin, send it to this address and I'll get it. When you do that with Ether, and Ether is a new thing for Coinbase, it says do not ask people to send money. This is basically just a holding wallet for now. So if you want to, if you want to spend money that you have tied up in Ether on Coinbase, you either convert it to dollars and then move it to your bank account and spend it as cash, or you convert it to dollars and then buy Bitcoin and spend Bitcoin because you can send and receive Bitcoin, right? So that's, that's all that Coinbase does right now, but it does let you hold Ether. So it is, More of like an investment right now. I'm sure they'll add other features for Ether in time. And it may have to do with how Ether actually works within the Ethereum network. I don't know yet. Okay, But that's why I like it, because it works now for everyone. If you can use PayPal, you can use Coinbase. If you have used PayPal to create a payment button and put it on a website and people pay you with PayPal, you can use Coinbase to create a payment button and get paid in Bitcoin tomorrow if you have customers willing to do it. Okay, That's why I think so highly of it. My final thoughts on Bitcoin is an investment. Um, I want to point out, again, it's instantly liquid. I love instantly liquid in any investment. I hold you know, stocks that are instantly liquid. I, I don't, don't generally like to hold uh, anything that I can't immediately convert into something else. Now, I might hold a stock inside an IRA, And the IRA is not liquid to cash without tax consequences as cash I can spend, but it's liquid to cash inside the IRA, right? That's how Bitcoin works. But when you want that added security and you put your Bitcoin in a vault, okay, then you have 48 hours to liquidity. It takes two days for that money to come out so it can be converted to dollars. The reason you have to think about that, it's nice to have the added security, but if, if you have a lot of money tied up and Bitcoin starts taking a nosedive, you got to sit there and take it for 48 hours until you can turn it to cash. So it's up to you whether or not you think that vault is, is valid. To me, if Bitcoin went to $200 tomorrow, I wouldn't sell any of it. I'd just sit there and wait for it to come back. In fact, I might buy some. So I'm not really worried about that. But if you are using the investment concept of trading then you wouldn't want money that you're, you've earmarked for trading on dips and, and falls, right? Uh, the, the, the rises and falls, the dips and the valleys. You, you wouldn't want that in a vault because you can't move it quick enough. But, again, 
it's totally liquid if you leave it in that form, the, the regular form. The next thing is it's not legally money, and I think this is good. I think this is good because if inflation hits my dollars, and I've held uh, $1,000 for a year, and my $1,000 now buys what $800 buys me, I don't get a capital loss. You understand what I'm saying? The government's not like, oh, we're sorry we stole 20% of your value of your money. You can, you can write it off as a loss. When I spend the money, it's just gone. It just buys me less. If I did have $1,000 worth of Bitcoin that I took in, and something went wrong with Bitcoin, and I, I needed the money, so I went to spend it, and that $1,000 got spent as $800, I can go back and take a capital loss of $200 off of it because I lost money because the government says it's not money. It's a commodity. And it does open this whole wormhole of how one currency can create another that can back another, and a, a thing like Ethereum can create this whole virtual world that they don't get to say anything about. And I remember I remember very much when I talked about virtual uh, nations, and people said, but Jack, it doesn't matter. There's no land, right? If you can't buy something that's physical that's shipped to your house with it then, it, then it doesn't really do anything to free people. You're thinking too small. If it enables a person to do something like a Kickstarter, but not pay tax on the money, because it's not money, then what? Well, if you do it with that Bitcoin, Jack, you have to pay tax on it. Coinbase is going to send you a 1099K. It's considered revenue. You're going to have to fund some of it into dollars so you can afford the tax consequences and pay the tax, man. And yeah, I, I get that, but that's because it's revenue on Kickstarter. It's not, it's not investment. And if I try to do it as investment, the, the FTC says I can't do it as investment because they control that world. How will they approach Ethereum? Now, I'll tell you, I'm not going to go first. <laughs> I, I'm not risking federal prison, but I, I'm interested to see if these folks can figure out how, how to pull this off. This idea has been around a long time. People are trying to pull it off. Can you imagine a place, a, a stock, an ethical stock market, where your idea for a business can be funded and people can actually get a return on their investment? And it's not the government's business because they can't even audit it. And you can even turn around to the government and say, here's our profit this year in the real world. Here's your token. Go away. And the person that's an investor that receives a return, if they ever pull that money out of the world of Ethereum or Libertas or whatever it is, can do the same thing and be above board with that. But in here, this is our world. Well, we need to see it. Sorry, you can't see it. Well, whoever's in charge, we're gonna sorry, there's no one person in charge. Doesn't work that way. I believe that this is this is the future of mankind's liberation. And that governments are scared shitless about it. They really they really can't do anything though. There's really nothing that can be done at this point. All they can do is try to emulate it. And I think like again, from an investor standpoint, when I look at Bitcoin, you're telling me how much Bitcoin will be produced every year. You're telling me how long it will be produced for. You're telling me what the market, the market capitalization will always be. I always know what the market cap is. There's no question in it. And all I know is that if more people use it next year than this year, 
Greater demand for a dwindling supply equals upward pressure on price. I see it as a reasonable investment. I don't see it as, let's take the kid's college fund and, and liquidate it and go into Bitcoin with it. I No. No. I see this as something that's, you know, probably half of what your silver and gold investment would be. Um, but I think it makes sense. For me. It doesn't mean it makes sense for you. But that's kind of how I look at it. And I think that that's the best way to look at it, that we don't really know what the future holds. But there's only there's only so many things governments can do to control people before people will rebel. And I think this is the future of rebellion, virtual currencies. That's why I do business. And the main reason I take Bitcoin as a form of payment is because I can. And I feel that if these things are going to work, if they're going to matter, then people need to do something. People need to be part of it. The only way we can ever make this successful is to get more people using it. There's a, there's like a, a service, I don't remember what it's called now, I heard about it on Free Talk Live again, where when you go to a, uh, a meal and you sit down and your waiter waits on you, you can leave them their regular tip and you can leave them a small tip in Bitcoin on a business card. And it tells them how to claim their Bitcoin. They go set up an account. I don't think it's Coinbase. It's a different exchange. And they claim their you know fraction of a Bitcoin that you gave them. If they don't use it within a certain amount of time, you keep the money. They don't get it. It goes back to you. But that's a way it can be spread. And I feel like these are the types of creative things that are going to be done and are being done. And because that's happening, you got to think about our government trying to get their hands around this. They have bigger problems, Right? At least they think they do. They have much bigger problems than this. The, the, the government right now is beginning more and more legalization and backing off on cannabis in spite of what the, what the, the, uh, the FDA just ruled about it still being a Schedule One drug because they can't. Remember what Alex said in the history segment? Don't pass a law unless you expect people to obey it. How's that working with cannabis? Okay, cannabis is physical. You can actually catch the person with it. You can test them for it. These virtual currencies can be done in such ways that you can literally get on a plane and have nothing. They can audit your, your, your bank accounts or you can be broke. And you can go to another country. You can sit down on a computer. You can pull out a paper wallet or a mnemonic device. And boom, you have your money available to you that can be spent and converted into currencies. How are they going to police this? This is why they attacked it, and now they're trying to emulate it, because they can't police it. They really can't. And how do you get people to obey a law when the law makes no sense to them? How do you get people to obey a law when they know you can't enforce it, and it makes no sense to them? How do you get people to obey a law when, you, when they know you can't enforce it, it makes no sense to them, and they consider your law immoral? Well, the answer is you can't. And you'll eventually lose control of those people. So then you have to try to co-opt the system. And this is kind of what I want to finish with. I think Bitcoin and virtual currencies are a lot like Uber. And the taxi industry thinking it can compete with Uber because it's about price. right? Uber isn't awesome because it costs less than a taxi. Because I take, I usually take, when I use Uber, I take Uber Black and get a nice car. And it costs the same as a taxi that might not be as nice a car, by the way, in general. Because the markets affect the price of Uber, how many are available, etc. So 
what makes Uber awesome is I pick up my phone and I see, okay, there's there's five Uber drivers within a couple miles of here. Here's where I want to go. Here's how much it's going to cost me for the base service, for the black service, for you know the, the SUV because I got a bunch of guys with me and we're all drinking and we don't want to drive home and get busted. So, okay, I want the SUV. Okay, it's going to cost me that much. Guy will be here in five minutes. Yes. And then they show up. I don't call a taxi company and beg them to send a car. I don't get out of my plane and see a bunch of taxis lined up at the airport and see one stinky, smelly guy and count the line and go, I'm getting him and there's nothing I can do about it except get back to the back of the line and try to get a new taxi driver. I come out of the airport, go beep, there's my driver, beep, and I look at my phone and I watch my driver show up. I have a picture of them. I know what they look like. I can see how they've been rated. I can, oh man, uh, he's going the wrong way. He's got something confused. I can text him or call him and say, hey, I'm actually over here. Okay, taxis can't do that. Uber isn't just a better alternative in price. Uber has features and, and, and services that are not available through taxis. They technologically are a better solution. Bitcoin is technologically a better solution, not just in dollars, but in dollar banking. It does things and has features and security protocols that dollars don't. That's why I think it's a better solution. So hopefully you guys understand where I'm coming from on Bitcoin today and why it's not Tulip Mania. Because if it was Tulip Mania, uh, we would have hit that by now. Tulip Mania didn't last that long. Let's talk about the genesis of Bitcoin, just so you can understand how long. I don't think people realize how long it's been around. In November 2008, a paper was posted on the Internet under the name Sasio Namamakoto, titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. This paper detailed methods of using peer-to-peer network to generate what was described as a system for electronic transactions without relying on trust. In January 2009, the Bitcoin network came into existence with the release of the first open-source Bitcoin client and issuance of the first Bitcoins. With Satoshi Nakamoto uh, mining the first block of Bitcoins ever known as the Genesis block, which has a reward of 50 Bitcoins. The value of the first Bitcoin transactions were negotiated by individuals on the Bitcoin Talk forums, with one notable transaction of 10,000 Bitcoin used indirectly to purchase two pizzas delivered by Papa John's. Okay, now, that's 2,000. Nine. It is 2016. In 2009, to kind of put it in perspective, Barack Obama became our president. Barack Obama is about to finish his second term, and Bitcoin went from being something that you had to use 10000 of to get two Papa John's pizzas to something being worth $500 a piece. If it was Tulip Mania... It would be done by now. My thoughts. Anyway, with that, before we uh, close up today, I want to remind you, if you like this show and you want to support the work I do, you can join the Members Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and i got lots of great discounts lined up for you that will more than pay you back for the cost of your membership. And yes, you can use Bitcoin to pay for MSB. Uh, those of you that want to do that, just go to the bottom of the page and you'll see all the different options to pay, including pay by Bitcoin. You'll fill out a form that will redirect you to a button. You send me the Bitcoin. I set up your account. It takes a little longer than the automatic way, but 
it's still really, really simple. Uh, next up, the other way you can support me, and unfortunately, they don't take Bitcoin yet. At least I don't think they do. Amazon.com. If you buy stuff from Amazon.com, you can buy stuff from Amazon.com by going to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see some links. The very first one says, click here to shop on Amazon. If you click that link, anything you buy will help support the Survival Podcast, and it will cost you not a dime more in money. So if you were thinking today, you know what, Jack, I really appreciate I understand this more now, and uh, I'd like to do something nice for you in return. Just the next time you're going to shop on Amazon, go to tspaz instead of Amazon, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and do your Amazon shopping. Spend no more money, type one less letter, and support the survivalpodcast.com. That's that simple. Um, today's closing song is also something I think you're going to like today. It's a guy I never heard of before. Uh, a guy sent me a request that I put this song on the air today, and I listened to it and thought, yeah, this would be fun. Uh, it's called 21, and it's by a guy named Corey Smith, country song. And here's some of the lines from me. He says, when I was only 17, I couldn't wait for 21. I'd hang around on Clayton Street in the bars there getting drunk. A baseball cap and a fake ID would get me in the clubs. Then I would dance with the college girls and lie about who I was. I'd say I'm pre-med here at UGA and live on Mildred Avenue. I was raised over in Buckhead. I drive a BMW, right? I was breaking hearts and taking names and numbers just for fun, stealing kishes, wishing I was 21. Um, you can listen to the song like the rest of it, but here's kind of where it ends up. It says, uh, now I'm only 26, feeling more like 43. My hairline's disappearing, and I never get ID'd. My clothes are out of fashion. No, I'm not cool anymore. I'm in my bed by 10 o'clock each night and up at half past four. Still, I go down to the college town when the Bulldogs play at home. I drink cake beer from the trash can till the whole damn thing is gone. I look at those college girls so innocent and young, and I just check them out and say, damn, I wish I was 21. Now, this song's playful in a way, you know, and it's, but it makes a real point. I think that we spend a lot of our lives wishing we were somewhere else or at some other age or at some other point in our life. And eventually we get to that point or that age or that thing in our life and it passes all too quickly. And we spend a whole lot of our life looking back at it, wishing we were there. Or many times I think when we really get wise, we almost think to ourselves, wish I, for the 21 thing, wish I was 17 again. Wish I was 17 wanting to be 21 again, knowing what I know now. But the successful people in this world live in now, today, this point in time. There's times when I sit and I, I seriously contemplate my life, and instead of being smart and thinking about all the good things that I've done in my life and all the things that I've accomplished and, 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 and lifting myself up with that, I'll, I'll just remember all of a sudden something I said or did to someone a long time ago or a mistake that I made that I really wish I never would have made. And sometimes I'll get down on myself and I'll think about that. You know, I'll think about, I'll think about a mean thing I said to a girl in high school when I was 15 years old and kind of hope, you know, someday I ever see that girl again and apologize. That was mean. Probably won't even remember it, but I do because I got that weird memory. And the reality, though, is it's not good to live in the past unless you have amends to make. If it, if I had, like, destroyed somebody's house or something, I would, you know, by now, being able to financially help make restitution, I would go do that. But when it comes to, like, little things and mistakes 
and mistakes that you've made and already paid for, but that, that paying for is still with you. Some of you in this audience I know have, have, have spent time in, in jail or prison. Some of you for what I consider victimless crimes that, that maybe you made the mistake of getting caught on um, or something led you down the wrong path, but I really don't think you should have been there. And some of you I've heard from that have honestly said, you know, I, I, I made real mistakes and I hurt people and that's why I ended up in jail. And I, I've had people email me and say, you know, I've, I sat out of prison after 10 years. And, and some people with enough courage to say, and I deserve to be there. And now I'm trying to put my life back together. You know, even with that, there's only now. There's only today. So we can, and it's as dangerous to look back at those mistakes and think they define us today. It is as it is to look back at our past successes and think they define us today. If you're, because if you're kind of like, then you're the, the person that's still holding up the, the foam finger saying USA number one because we won the hockey game in 1980 against the Russians and you weren't even born yet. But somebody told you about it. You're doing that in your own life. Our past successes and our past failures have made up who we are today. But what we do today and tomorrow is what matters. So we can look back at 21 fondly or we can look at back with some sadness But in the end, we're better off looking forward. Because this guy feels like he's 43 at 26. I'm 44 or 44, yeah. I'm 44 and I'm starting to feel like I'm 25 again. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. When I was only 17, I couldn't wait for 21. I'd hang around on Clayton Street in the bars there getting drunk. A baseball cap and a fake ID would get me in the clubs. Then I would dance with the college girls and lie about who I was. I'd say I'm pre-med here at UGA, live on Millage Avenue. I was raised over in Buckhead, I'd drop a beam on you. I was breaking hearts and taking names and numbers just for fun. Stealing kisses, wishing I was 21. Thursdays came and pocket change would quickly disappear. Upstairs at Lowry's Tavern, we'd pay a nickel for the beer. Shooting pool, smoking cigarettes with a dizzy head and a grin. At 4 a.m. on a school night, still hanging out with my friends. One hour sleep on a dirty couch, no shower off to school. Smelling just like a Would hassle me, stay awake, pay attention I was catching hell, wishing I was 21 The youngest one of all my friends, I didn't act my age So cool for the football games and the homecoming parade Now I'm 
I'm somewhere in the gray of middle class and middle age. The man in the mirror looks more like my father every day. My clothes are out of fashion. My hair is getting thin. And my favorite conversation starts with I remember when. Still we go down to that college town dancing at the 80s bar. We drink until we feel a whole lot cooler than we are. Then I look at all those college girls so innocent and young. And I just check them out and say, damn, I wish I was 21. 